0: Hello, my name's Ken Barrett. Welcome to Brainland podcast number 16. In Shakespeare's play Love's Labour's Lost, a character comments that beauty is bought by judgment of the eye or, to put it another way, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Of course, what that really means is that beauty is in the mind, or should it be the brain of the beholder? When things, people, tastes, sounds are beautiful to us, what areas or networks in our brain are activated, and how much is that activation influenced by our beliefs, say? These are some of the questions we'll be considering in today's podcast. Anjan Chatterjee is Professor of Neurology, Psychology and Architecture, at the University of Pennsylvania and the head of the Penn Center for Neuroaesthetics, I'm delighted that he's agreed to guide us through this subject. Great, yeah. Well, well. Thanks for joining us uh, on uh, on Brainland. I, I think it's fair to say that you have an unusual job title. So, I wonder if we could begin by uh, you telling us about your professional journey and background. What attracted you to this subject? So, it probably goes back to
1: my undergraduate days. Uh, my um, my undergraduate degree was in philosophy and so those kinds of questions were always of interest um i ended up in med school uh through very circuitous routes uh and found uh once we got to neuroscience i was i was finally engaged in med school before that it was just memorize facts and spit them out for exams uh but that was the first time i found i wanted to read the material really to know the information and to think about it. And so that was a sign. Uh, I got interested in uh, what used to be called behavioral neurology, uh, later got rebranded as cognitive neurology um, and the just the amazing phenomenology that patients have uh, that maybe tells you gives you some insight into the nature of the mind and the nature of consciousness and so on. Uh, at the time uh so I was in medical school from 81 to 85. it was not fashionable to study cognitive neurology it was my um my mentors and advisors kept thinking this was suicide career suicide that any self-respecting physician who wanted to also be a scientist should be studying protein chemistry or cellular biology or immunology which was just taking off my first year in med school we just started to hear about the uh this strange disease in New York uh AIDS and by 85 when I graduated was a full-on uh epidemic so uh so those were the uh those were the domains in which people thought uh th- thought were important and this cognitive stuff was all soft and fuzzy and you know there was that crazy guy in Boston Norm Geshwind, who was talking about it but really there wasn't much much else going on uh, so anyway nonetheless and I got the same message in my uh during my residency at the University of Chicago uh but it was what I was interested in so I persisted I ended up studying uh you know did one dementia fellowship and then studied with Ken Heilman and at the University of Florida uh and since then, I've been interested in the nature of the mind, um, the more recent. Well, the interest in aesthetics has become much more formalized in the last five or six years. I've been studying it for more than 20 years. But uh, setting up the the center at Penn really brought all of the focus to those kinds of questions.
0: Do, do you have an art practice separate to this or is it just as a sort of spectator that you?
1: Um, I do. Uh, Growing up, I used to draw a lot. I always had a sketch pad with me, Uh, and then once I got to med school and time became more uh, constrained, uh, photography was a big obsession, and that at various times has been, it's always been there, but to varying degrees of uh, intensity.
0: Right, Uh, and and when when did architecture come into the picture then? Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about this in more detail later, but I just thought it was interesting to...
1: Yeah. Architecture came in, uh, it actually started out with the collaboration uh with uh with some people, uh, and that was I'd say about 10 years ago. Um, you know, the way we try to organize our thinking is how the brain carves out the world. So if you say if the you know brain, particularly in occipital cortex, you know, has regions that are Uh, especially tuned to people places and things uh, that we are interested in the aesthetic experience of people places and things and once you start talking about places you get natural landscapes and then the built environment where most of us spend much of our time uh, so that becomes uh, a domain of inquiry
0: yeah, and it's kind of art that we can't avoid, isn't it? That really, <laughs> yeah. if you live in a tent and even that's designed, I suppose. Really. Yeah, but, well, I'm
1: especially thinking. now with, with, with uh, sort of high tech gear, tents are amazing.
0: Well, that's right. I I'll take your word for it. I haven't done any camping for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um But I mean, all academic inquiry starts with definitions. So firstly, I mean, what do we mean by beauty and how would you define neuroaesthetics and i guess why is it important in your
1: yeah. i think most people have an intuition about what beauty is uh they they feel it uh you know we think of at the simplest level beauty is the uh, kind of sensory experience that gives us pleasure uh, and that's a first approximation and then there are layers on that and what that might mean um and it might be worth at least introducing one idea that we have pushed, uh, which we call the aesthetic triad. Uh, And this triad has broadly uh, three large components, uh, which are our sensory motor systems, uh, our reward and emotional systems, and the third is semantic and meaning uh and so how the three of those intersect in creating an aesthetic experience or an experience of beauty but to a first approximation you'd say there are certain kinds of colors if we're talking about visual beauty sort of colors and patterns and proportions and uh, compositions that seem to uh give us pleasure and that's a kind of beauty now why is it important um it It's a it it's answered more easily in some ways in the negative, which is imagine uh a life without beauty. You know, you wake up in the morning, you know, your bedroom is perfectly functional. It keeps you safe and warm. And uh, you know, your clothes are perfectly functional, they clad you the way you want, but there's no sense of style or fashion. And you go out and you go to your office and it's you know a box that You know you have good functionality to it you know you know you eat your food that is optimally designed for your nutrition but there's no flavor there's no taste Uh, and you take each of the things that we do in our daily lives and say if there was no beauty involved in this interaction whether it's with your teapot or whether it's with your uh, your car uh, if there was no beauty and things were functionally perfect is that a kind of life one would like to live and most people say no uh that there is a kind of sense of flourishing and a sense of feeling fulfilled by encountering Beauty uh, I think uh you know then there, there are they're very having said that at a broad level there are certainly pragmatic aspects to it which is you know when we think about the way in which beauty in people has an effect on us whether it's finding partners and who we uh, uh, wish to spend time with and in complicated ways uh, that there is a beauty is good stereotype uh, where people who are attractive are often thought also to be more intelligent more trustworthy more competent and so on and we've been finding a corollary to that an unfortunate corollary that people who have minor facial anomalies scars um burn marks developmental delays uh, there's also a facial anomaly is bad stereotype that people have mm-hmm. um, and this uh, we think is greatly magnified by popular culture so if you think about movies all of the the Star Wars universe or the Marvel universe villains are often shown almost always with some kind of facial disfigurement and so it's a it's a quick shorthand to say bad person we don't have to develop a character but these are real people that have burns and things that uh you know that that affects their lives So I think that's uh, you know this idea that we our brains are very good at discriminating between objects but not very good at discriminating values so moral and aesthetic values often get conflated and that has real practical consequences architecture I think in the you know in the pandemic people started realizing that oh I'm stuck in this space and all of a sudden do I feel good or not good in this space right so the real practical consequences uh, and in art we, ha- we have uh, probably our most practical project right now is looking at art uh, in the context of art therapy among veterans that have post-traumatic stress Uh, and the idea there that art can be a vehicle for emotional expression in a way that sometimes people have a hard time putting in words Uh, and then it becomes a it becomes a um, uh, a context in which a therapist can then actually do talk therapy or whatever other therapy, but that becomes the vehicle uh, because of the the expressive nature of art or the expressive possibilities of art. So those are some very practical- um,
0: But just sticking ways. on that last point, so that's expressive and creative really, is, is that sort of combination. And and I was yes. uh, sort of veterans particularly, a lot of what they produce might actually be judged as ugly in a sense that, you know, it, it's disturbing and, and uh doesn't have which I suppose is the other hole to beauty, isn't it? Isn't it really? Yeah um, so it you know because it's they have to get it out and, and and so so much art is in whatever medium is is not necessarily pleasant is it really as an experience you know but it clearly helps the person who's who's created it. What what's your experience with the veterans? I mean are they do they use it as an escape from some of the darkness or do they ventilate it or was it a mixture? well this is being done in a
1: very uh organized and programmatic way uh so people are enrolling in an eight-week program uh so they're you know they're coming seeking help uh and uh what uh what the therapists, the way they start the way our program is set up is you start with a blank paper mache mask and they're actually asked to paint on it a kind of self portrait uh, of you know an emotional self portrait oh, wow. uh and we also do that at the end uh and you know and then there are other kind of during the therapy there are other kinds of artwork that they do whether it's oils or watercolors and stuff some stuff with caregivers together uh but particularly so this is a context in which people are being asked to express uh what they're feeling and once they have it out there they can be quite um eloquent about what's going on in the way that they feel alienated the way they feel ripped asunder from society and the kind of trauma they experience um, so you're quite right that it is uh not this is not pretty art it's powerful art Yeah. Uh, and you know, I think uh, art can be complicated, and it can provoke, it can challenge, uh, and sometimes the most interesting art are things that have a level of ambiguity in them, uh, in a way that it's not a straight up Thomas Kinkade. Let's feel good about this image. Uh, kind oh, I of
0: mean, and, and and I mean, I've seen some amazing installations that are yeah. disturbing. I know there was a a, um, a guy who took a lot of photos after the Rwandan sort of genocide. Yeah. Um, his installation was his cabinet with all these photos in it because he felt there were too awful to show. And it was just so... What yeah. he had was a photograph of, of a girl's eyes, which yeah. he multiplied uh, uh, sort of hundreds of times and had it in a big pile and slides that you could view. Um, and then they were on the wall. I mean, none of that was pretty, really. But, you know, as you say, he's, aesthetics is a funny thing, isn't it, really? And especially in contemporary art. It's a, it's a tricky thing to, uh, to say what you have to be educated partly to appreciate it really
1: yeah you? so one thing we're doing if I could and this might be a tangent from where we want to go but no, uh, fine, yeah. uh but we we've been developing uh, uh a taxonomy for the way art can have an impact on a person or on you or me right. uh, and and the the idea is analogous to something like wine tasting where you know you you know you have this complex flavor in your mouth. And most people uh, can say, I like it, I don't like it, or I think it's interesting, right? Those are the three most common responses you can get. But after that, uh, unless you have training or education, it's very hard to come up with things. And so an expert might say, uh, you know, it's, you know, medium-bodied, and there's plums and cherries in there, and the right amount of acid or tannin. And once someone points that out, uh, it's easier to yeah. pick out those flavors, having given the, that those those descriptors, right? So our our take is it, that analogy uh, might work also for the way art. Uh, if if you say. If people are willing to engage in a work of art, then that's a whole other conversation of how often are people really willing to do that. Uh, but, but knowing what your response is to this, having a vocabulary can be helpful. Uh, and then in this case, you're less concerned about where does this piece fit into an art historical narrative or what do I know about this particular artist or movement as much as the art becomes a vehicle for self-discovery which is that if you find something disturbing and now you can say that's unsettling and identify that's what's going on it raises questions of why am I unsettled by this or if it makes me curious or repulsed or feel uh transformed what is being transformed. And so we our approach now, and this goes back to education is we are trying to develop this kind of vocabulary that is, uh, you know, that's empirically derived uh, in a way that can organize people's experiences and and hopefully, we think make it a richer experience, uh, but also as a vehicle for self-discovery.
0: And is it a a vehicle then for our kind of neurological discovery? I mean, are you then trying to find correlates of these kind of separations?
1: Right. And so that's what we're doing. Uh, We're in the midst of a project right now is taking a a lot of artwork uh, and norming them on these kinds of different dimensions we have. And once we have a good sense of sort of critical works of art that that we can vary depending on let let's say uh a feeling of awe uh right a- versus something that is uh makes people feel anxious or you know whatever we end up finding then the idea is that will give us some purchase on for example an imaging study of saying that uh you know if you vary this dimension parametrically where in the brain Are there is there neural activity that also varies parametrically? And ideally, we would have some idea about that, so it's not completely exploratory. So we would be targeting particular regions. But yes, that's exactly the kind of, um, you know, going forward where we think we can go with this.
0: Going back, you mentioned this triad: so the sensory, motor, reward, emotional, and uh, semantic meaning. Are are you? if we say, say I um, I think something is beautiful, be it a piece of music or a panorama or a person or a or, or meal or whatever. I mean, within those parameters, have you been able to pin down particular systems or particular uh, interactions in the brain that tend to correlate with, with them?
1: Yeah, so the obvious one would be between rewards and sensory systems. So, for example... Uh, If you think about beautiful faces, uh, we find that parts of the fusiform gyrus, the fusiform face area is active that varies by how attractive a face is and parts of the reward system. So whether it's nucleus accumbens or a frontal cortex, and the simultaneous activity of both those areas is um, to first approximation the experience of a beautiful face uh if you're saying a landscape then rather than the fusiform gyrus you end up in the parapocampal uh gyrus you know slightly offset uh, and uh, so uh so what differentiates sometimes these domains are the areas of the brain that seem to be uh tuned to processing that kind of information now it's it's itself to me is an interesting idea because if we said the organization of the brain is that the back of the brain classifies things and the front of the brain imposes value on it right we would say well that that makes sense it's sort of a a logical way of doing things but what we're seeing is that this value stuff happens quite early in processing Uh, and one implication of that is that perception and valuation are really really tightly linked that it's very hard to not impose a value on things that we perceive uh, if it's music, then you have parts of auditory cortex in the same uh, same regions. Now, when it comes to the semantic system, the kinds of uh, experiments uh, that have been done, uh, there are a couple, which is, so, th- so there are behavioral experiments that people have done and we've done, which is just providing some contextual information about an artwork. Um, enhances the experience people appreciate more especially if they haven't had a lot of uh, exposure to art the the neural correlates of this are the following kinds of things which is uh there was one study that was done in copenhagen looking at excuse me looking at abstract images and people were told that these were um hanging in a fancy gallery somewhere or that they were generated by a random program
0: Uh,
1: and they're looking at exactly the same thing so the same information is coming into their eyes and processed in the brain but that kind of even that minimal kind of context had a big impact on both their behavioral responses that if they thought it was in a gallery they thought oh these are more attractive or more engaging and interestingly that in parts of the reward system that there was actually greater neural activity in those conditions so it wasn't just that they were saying maybe what they thought was the right answer but there there was actually a neural correlate to to this Um,
0: one of the frustrations of of migrating from uh sort of biomedical area to the arts really is that there is gatekeepers in the arts and um uh, I mean, I suppose in medicine, you know, if somebody said you heard a professor and and somebody bigs you up, you know, to, uh, yeah. uh, and then the, the other one said, oh, you well, just scraped through medical school, or well, do you know what I mean? That that makes the whole, whole other level of perception. But generally speaking, uh, it's yeah. the more uh, level playing field. Whereas in the arts, if somebody says somebody prominent says, ah, he's not very good, then it, that really colours um, a widespread perception. Really, and 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 presumably that then is this top down dampening down of your normal responses really well yeah so it uh, you know it's it
1: is a fact that that happens and then what do you do with it uh so i would say that um you know we we kind of see that these experts are also you know revising their views uh you know that there's a certain kind of art historical narrative that then becomes uh you know people start re-examining that over time. you know, most recent example or an example of that is the whole place of Hillmoth Clint, uh, you know, and as this, uh Scandinavian woman who was doing abstraction before maybe probably before Kandinsky and Kandinsky's regarded as oh. the first right so now all of a sudden here's this other person who was doing the stuff they she actually knew Kandinsky
0: and the woman that's the other big thing at the minute isn't it really? right and she was a woman
1: right and so so yeah. you know so this gets now gets gets reassessed uh you know one of the things that we have been doing is that so much of the empirical work has focused on european and north american art and completely ignoring this very rich artistic tradition in other parts of the world so we're trying to bring that in as well um so i i do think these these what the the gatekeepers in a narrow sense i think they play more very much to the art market right so you decide richard Koons is like you know the cat's meow and so his work you know makes a lot of money where someone might look at, at that and wonder why. Uh, so there are those kinds of gatekeepers that that, uh, and you know, the the famous gallery owners and the museum curators and that sort of thing that plays partly to the art market, I think. Um, but the other kind of just the general idea that being educated in any domain is useful, uh, as you know, I mean, maybe not everybody believes this, but I do uh and uh and i think knowing something about art knowing something about techniques knowing something about the artist knowing something about the cultural milieu in which it was created what it was responding to just makes for a richer experience uh and uh and you know that can so the other question going back to this conflation of aesthetic and moral values knowing something about the artist if you think the artist was uh, an immoral character that can have an influence on how you experience their art as
0: well so. sure okay well yeah and that's happening a lot I mean in uh yeah we could come back to that actually but, yeah. uh, the opera you know Wagner and Strauss these sort of whose reputations have been affected um but there's you talked about veterans but how about uh, I know other people have looked at the general benefits of you know, because in education, oh, it's undervalued as a, as you know, and if you have to cut back, you cut back on the art. But mm-hmm. what ex- research has there been on the the beneficial effect of of art in in various ways, either doing or or, or uh, appreciating, really, to to quality of life?
1: Yeah, there's a lot
0: of interest in
1: this right now. Uh, you know, so even things like uh is art in waiting rooms or in patients rooms does that help with recovery that sort of thing uh is art um you know just being exposed to art uh, there there are some movements uh that you might know about where people are prescribing for patients to go to museums I know Montreal has a program like this oh, really? uh, there are some programs in current like uh in the medical humanities of having medical students go to art museums and the I, their idea there is generally uh to improve people's uh, ability to observe details and to also empathize you know so these are picked out and and i suspect uh you and i are probably similar vintages uh, i suspect some of this is a reaction to the fact that when we were training you spent most of the patient visit looking at the patient and now physicians spend most of the time looking at a computer screen and not wow. even looking at the person right so there's a, a kind of disconnect there uh, where all of a sudden you have to remember, Oh, like, you know, maybe looking at the person actually gives me useful information. So
0: well, it, maybe it's, it's, um, I mean, it was interesting when I, when I came back to, well, I never left it, but when I really started focusing about 20 years ago, it was on faces and on portraits yeah. that I was interested really. And I think what, yeah. you know, so much is in the person. whatever a person says, yeah, so much is in their face or their eyes or whatever really. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I can see that it becomes too technical, and um, you're not look. You're not. You're, you're. I suppose you're. You're ignoring all sorts of signals that your your brain is geared up to pick up. Yeah, sort of thing, isn't it, really?
1: yeah, absolutely. So I think there are all of these movements afoot. Um, having said that, the actual evidence of benefit is pretty thin. Right. Uh, And, you know, I think it's early days uh, and maybe those benefits will become clear uh, and what they are and for whom. Uh, But I, I at this point, I think if you sit down and actually look at studies, the kind of things you might be interested in, which is, you know, what what are the control conditions uh you know who is benefiting how are you measuring their benefits uh some very basic things that you might ask of an intervention those data are 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 not there just isn't much data
0: well I mean that's that's still an open field I suppose really. yes I'm, completely open just shown, field. just defining your terms and uh, you know, is a whole sort of field in itself. Can we swing back to architecture then? I mean, I can sure, see, sure. A, if you wanted to look at the neurological response, fMRI or whatever to a particular work of art or a style of art, this sort of thing, it's discrete. Um Whereas architecture, I mean, every time you, you take a few steps, it's a different perception, isn't it really? How on earth do you study yeah. response to the built environment uh, or the interior yeah. environment um, uh, neurologically? Yeah.
1: So let me, uh, if you don't mind, let me read a, a, a quote because I was working on a talk that I'm giving in a couple of a uh, couple of in a few weeks. Uh, and the building I'm in, uh, my office is one designed by uh, an architect named Louis Kahn, who's very famous in the U.S. Uh, and this is a quote from him. Uh, he says, a great building, in my opinion, must begin with the unmeasurable go through the measurable means when it is being designed, and in the end, must be unmeasurable. And then goes on to say, what is unmeasurable is the psychic spirit. The psyche is expressed by feeling and thought, and I believe will always be unmeasurable, right? So, I mean, I think it really encapsulates this problem. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, we we've done fMRI studies and on first principles you could say it's the silliest way to try to study architecture right you're looking at flat images people are completely still lying on their back right it's it's um, it seems pretty silly um what we have done uh using behavioral methods and imaging is uh suggest that our responses our psychological responses to the built environment uh falls into three broad dimensions and the dimensions uh we are calling them coherence uh, which is how organized is a space how legible is it fascination uh, which is how informationally complex is is it Uh, do, do you feel the desire to explore it um and hominess which is do you feel like you belong there is there uh you know are do you feel comfortable in those mm-hmm. and those three things can vary independently of each other and we have shown uh within occipital cortex that there are distinct neural responses
0: oh, really? mm-hmm. uh,
1: to those components and what's nice about this is that um that Hugo Spears, who I don't know if you know him, he's at UCL uh, in London, has replicated that using different methods, uh, but has replicated both the behavioral studies and the uh, and the, the the neural correlates, uh, and so we feel pretty confident about that. Um, we have found that, um, for example, people on the autism spectrum don't respond to the same to fascination the same way. Neurotypical people uh, do, and we think it's likely that uh, that kind of information density becomes overwhelming to them uh, in a way that's not uh, that other people can tolerate. Okay,
0: so, a fascination, sense of intriguing and complicated, and yeah, you know, all it, that. Okay.
1: Right, it's it, it tends to be visually complex uh and 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 rich that way and and we think that's too much can be overwhelming uh for certain populations. So I think these three constructs we've have now we're taking them out into the uh into the real world and we're doing studies uh you know in actual environments to try to get a sense of people's sense of the environment using you know these uh these constructs the other thing we're doing is starting to look at uh this in in VR systems and so the idea there is that you know at least you're getting a little past being still and looking at two-dimensional images and and so what I see this as a continuum of you know laboratory studies that are highly controlled that we you know we can uh you know where we've managed to eke out these constructs that we think generalize we want to look at them in VR so that there's a a more immersive kind of 3D experience and then out in the wild where we have very little control of what happens uh you know so I mean recently yeah, we have one study that we're looking at neighborhoods in Philadelphia Philadelphia has uh uh is very rich in murals there are more than four thousand murals around the city in every uh in every uh neighborhood regardless of social economics and class and all of that and so in one neighborhood we're running these field experiments and uh a homeless crazy person is there and starts you know screaming at the participants and doing what what they're doing. you know that's the sort of thing we have no control over and that completely affects the experience of the people. That has nothing
0: to do with the built environment, right? So, no, but it, I mean, in a sense, it, it's it's part of the street theater, I suppose. And you know, what I mean? I mean, it's part of the it's part of the street theater, unless you have a sterile place with nobody there at two in the morning. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. So, so
1: you know, but but
0: um, again, it, it it confounds your research protocol. It right?
1: confounds our research program. So we have those, you know, those five participants in that group. We have them separately. We, we will, you know, make a note of that this happened and not include their data in the group analyses right because it's such a a big variable but you know but again this 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 whole range from tightly controlled but ecologically quite removed uh experimental approaches to being out in in the real world where we have little control over things uh, you know there's a through line that we hope um is maintained across that, where we can still start to make some claims about uh, about both the psychological and the neural experience.
0: Do you see a, a situation where then, if people are looking at, say, bids for an architectural project, you would be almost looking neurologically, well, what will get the maximum benefit positive response from people and not just from a sort of a nod when they look at the images but something more basically neurological is that your end game is that the way you see this going not really i mean i've been
1: asked about that at one point there was an art gallery that wanted me to comment on this idea that could they take uh, physiologic responses like galvanic skin responses and heart rate variability and tell who wanted to uh, you know who is likely to buy what piece of art (laughs) right it's a a version of what you're saying um i think i i think we are not reluctant to rely on people's subjective responses uh, and use the physiology to support or bolster those subjective claims uh i don't think it to me it doesn't make sense to have the physiology drive it uh and and to say well people don't know what they feel or what they're thinking that the physiology is a truer indication well I mean my question would be if let's go back to a a meal and you say, I don't like it, when you put, eat this, and your physiology says, oh, no, but you really do like it. You're lying. (laughs) It it doesn't make sense.
0: No, I must say that the most um, disturbing neuro field that's come along is neuromarketing, really, the the (laughs) idea that, Oh, you know, whatever you think about it, your brain likes this, and that's what yeah, we're yeah. Doing. we don't care about you. We're going yeah. to your septum or something. You know right. <laughs> that's this thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're. I tend to keep these to forty minutes, so sure. I don't take too much time. But that's been uh, really nice, um, uh, Angela. Thanks for laying it out uh, and and so sort of uh, the taxonomy of it, I guess. I mean, it shows where you're, how you're starting out, doesn't it? Really. And so, uh, yeah, I'd be really interested to sort of follow this up and. Uh, um see how it how it goes <laughs> okay thanks so much andrew good sure thing Thank you yeah take care So many thanks again to Anjan Chatterjee for introducing us to what's obviously quite a complicated subject but making it uh, nice and straightforward. Um, The many and varied projects of the Penn Centre for Neuroesthetics uh, can be viewed on the link which is on the episode notes. So thanks for listening. Bye.